I'm standing in front of a hotel in Montreal talking to drummer Dave King. He's on tour with guitarist Julian Lodge. We're talking about the difficulties in flying this summer, flight cancellations and lost luggage. We walk over to say hi to Julian and bassist Scott Colley. go say hello to your band? Hey man, you too. Scott Colley, Good. Would you consent to be recorded for this conversation? Yes, I'll consent to saying that the airports are pretty gnarly right now. Yeah. yeah. But yet there is a kind of a genuine giddiness I'm feeling from you. Is that slap happy not sleeping or are you happy to be on the road? <laughs> I'm very happy to be on He's the road. He's happy to be talking into a microphone that looks like the, the, the Doc Brown character from... <laughs> Look at this. Yeah. It's Back to the Future. Dave King starts making fun of the windscreen on my microphone. Oh, it's one of the best interviews I ever did was with you. Don't be distracted by Dave King's Doc Brown impression from... Back to the Future. Let's focus on the thing Julian just said before that, about how he enjoyed the conversation we had last year around this time, just as his album Squint was coming out. Today we're revisiting that conversation. Julian's next album, View with a Room, is set to come out on Blue Note Records in September. The third story is now a partnership with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org studios to find out more about their award-winning content. And please enjoy this episode featuring the great Julian Lodge from 2021. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. In case you hadn't noticed, it's become more and more clear in recent years that the world is filled with exceptional young musicians, virtuosic instrumental assassins who seem to possess limitless technical abilities. Through social media and YouTube, these young lion cubs find their audience, share their talent, and enter the fray at extremely early ages. My Instagram feed is filled with videos of incredible kids playing on a level that is scary. But I don't know who I'm more scared for, me and the rest of us mere mortals who have to confront our own sobering limitations, or the kids who are thrust into the spotlight before they've even come into their own. How productive is it to be reliant on that constant feedback loop of approval and expectation, especially so soon? And I have to wonder, are there more of these special cases now because of the access that the internet affords? Why do we love prodigies? What does it say about us that somehow the younger a musician is, or an athlete, or a mathlete, or whatever, the more impressed we are? Maybe it suggests something about our own human potential. That essential truth about humanity, that we're capable of so much, of unlocking the mysteries of the universe, of reaching into thin air and producing great works of art and understanding. And when a child does it, it makes us feel all the more important, all the more connected to that source. Of course, the flip side of that is that it's disposable. There's almost nothing more fleeting than youth. And if what we value is the youth itself, the newness, rather than the person or the work, then we're guaranteed always to be looking for the next thing, the next kid, the younger talent. How does one live up to the promise of early exceptionalism, especially when history's eyes are already focused on next year's model? When he was just eight years old, Guitarist Julian Lodge was the subject of an Academy Award-nominated documentary called Jewels at Eight. Before he entered his teens, he had already performed with Carlos Santana and jazz vibraphonist Gary Burton. While still in high school, he was a faculty member of the Stanford Jazz Workshop. Julian was certainly one of these early exceptions. 
But as he tells it, luck was on his side to be born just before the age of U2, before every stunning note he played would be documented and distributed for public consumption. Just check him out. Julian grew up in Northern California, the youngest of five kids. He was nurtured by his family and mentored by the musicians who he met along the way. I've always felt that he plays guitar like someone in love. And despite his productive personal relationship with singer-songwriter Margaret Glaspie, she co-produced his new record, Squint, along with Armand Hirsch. I think the deep love affair of his life may in fact be with the guitar itself. The guitar is no simple mistress. It's like a Rorschach test. The way a person deals with the guitar and the potential that they see in it says more about them than it does about the instrument. And a love affair with such a creature can lead down any number of roads. Plenty of them aren't so pretty. In Julian's case, it seems to have provided him with a sense of wonder, of possibility, and of compassion. I want to tell you about the time I saw Julian Lage play in Paris. Not to brag, but in the words of the great Muhammad Ali, it ain't bragging if it's true. I was boarding a flight from New York to Paris back in the summer of 2017, and I recognized Julian Lage waiting in line to board too. We'd never met, but I knew it was him. So I walked up to him and I introduced myself. I don't know if he knew who I was. I don't think he did, but he sure seemed happy to know me either way. The first thing he did was offer to let me board the plane with him since he had good status. So we chatted as we waited. And he told me he was going to be playing that week at the Duc de Lombard, one of the great classic Parisian clubs, and he'd be happy to put me on the list. The next night, not knowing if he would have remembered or not, I went to the Duke and told the guy at the door that I might be on the list. And incredibly, I was. Julian had remembered. Okay, fine. It's not the most incredible story, but it does say something about him, I think. Though actually, the real story was what happened to me when I heard him play. I was stunned. I was healed. It was contagious. He had such an affection for the guitar and seemed determined to coax as much feeling and emotion out of it as he could. He's undoubtedly an artist, but that night I felt like he was also a steward of the instrument, particularly of the Telecaster, which is what he played in Paris and what he often plays. He was an advocate for the guitar and for treating it with kindness and respect. I'm not kidding. That's how I felt. After that night in July of 2017, I started trying to set up this interview with Julian Lage. It actually took four years. Because when you're in love, the world can wait. And Julian Lage is a man in love. I didn't ask him if he believes this or not, but I bet he does. Things happen for a reason. Things happen when they're supposed to. And I think that's true of this conversation. It was years in the making, but it came right on time. We talked recently about his new record, his first on Blue Note, which he recorded with drummer Dave King and bassist Jorge Roeder. During the course of the conversation, Julian also helped me to understand the role of the artist in society, the connection between the artist and the audience, the necessary dialectic among the two. He told me his story, how he traversed those murky waters of youthful exceptionalism and came out on the other side with more sensitivity to the music, to the people, to himself. Here's me and Julian Lodge talking it down.
there. Julian. Good to see you, my friend. You too. Thanks for making some time. I, I'm, of course. I mean, the same goes to you. Thank you for making time for this. So, man, where, where in the world are you? I'm in Park Slope in Brooklyn. Incredible. And you? We're currently staying on West 12th Street in New York uh, at a friend's place. Looking to, we, We've been trying to buy an apartment for a while and looking around and different prospects of almost worked and then not and I mean, it's it's been a kind of a hero's journey of sorts like uh learning a lot we had two prospects that were killer and they both fell through last night so we're like i don't know i don't know where we where we're gonna live but i'm here right now and we, we it's beautiful where we are i'm here right now might as well be the mantra of the year you know we all yeah. have to figure <laughs> yes. out what right now means to us that's the whole thing man it's like this it's a karmic lesson and i remember sonny rollins saying that once it was like he's like you just keep coming back and you have the opportunity to keep learning lessons you're meant to learn you know and and i feel like this is on a collective level a lesson we're all learning and definitely on a i can't speak for everyone but i can speak for myself that it's this thing that keeps recurring of letting go embracing presence being free knowing that it's okay to be happy <laughs> even if things aren't you know don't feel like you they warrant that well man that's an interesting thing to hear you say because i think your demeanor is quite positive in general and most mm. by most accounts people that have met you kind of walk away from the experience saying wow he was like much nicer than i thought he needed to be yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah right well it's 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 funny i know i know what you mean right there's a disposition that i share with my family and my partner, Margaret, I mean, we, I think we, in, in general, we lean towards, yeah, a certain type of disposition, but of being, you know, um, happy, you know, joyful in a certain way. But, but at the same time, I, what I'm talking about is that sense of kind of conditioned happiness. Like I'm, I can be okay if I do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to, I'm a good person if I practice my guitar today, you know, and those funny little, uh, well, I guess there's nothing funny about it, but those, those little, um, beliefs that go unquestioned for so long i was just talking about some about this to someone i think it was a, a week ago about chick korea we were just talking about our love for chick and what a great loss it was when he passed away this year and saying how chick had that amazing ability to uh be a creator to be an artist who i think genuinely was happy and 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 like kind of had this, uh, if you're around him, it was almost like he, he couldn't believe it either. What a miracle. Every note was, every, you know, concert was, every interaction was. And uh, and, and I, I just think that that's, in many respects, a little bit different than how I grew up. I grew up with a far stricter sense of, um, I guess, what I needed to do in order to be okay. And it wasn't imposed by anybody. It really wasn't. It wasn't. Um, I was surrounded by nurturing and supportive and loving parents and family, but it was almost it, it, because of that. I said, no, I got to be extra hard on myself. I got to be extra hard. You know, you were a prodigy. You started very young. You were celebrated early playing professionally at a young age. Yeah. There was a short documentary that was made about you at eight years old. Some of that is easy to track down online. And yeah. the footage that I've seen of it, there's a moment in which you describe the day you left your guitar at home and didn't take <laughs> it with you. That's right. You started playing at five. This conversation is 
now happening when you're eight years old. This scene, you're eight years old. It's been three years you're playing and you say, from the day my, my parents gave me the guitar, I played it every day, except one day I had to go yeah. on a trip and I left it at home and I regret <laughs> it. And then you say, and I regret that. <laughs> that's that's illustrates my point perfectly. <laughs> Isn't that funny, man? Where does that come from? And I, I felt that, you know, it wasn't like I didn't grow up in a guilt-filled home. I wasn't, I really, there wasn't that temperament. But I, I think, well, I just think there are these beliefs that can come about where, as a young person, you, I mean, in retrospect, I think it was a protective measure. Just like you're saying, I, I had a lot of attention at a young age for doing, for playing the guitar. And, and frankly, I get it. Like as an adult, if I see a young person do anything, I go, oh my God, they're a genius, you know? And and I kind of laugh because I think, oh, that's probably in reverse. But it looked like when I was a kid doing this stuff, I must have seemed precocious and like I was really whatever. But perhaps because I couldn't comprehend that interpretation of myself, I took the stance of, well, I can't take your word for it that mm. I'm any good. So I'm going to need to prove it to myself, you know? And that was in some ways very helpful because i think i uh i never felt threatened by the attention hmm. you know where i i i know in some cases a young person can get used to a certain degree of attention and then when it's not there they feel as though the bottom dropped out you know i think i always had a healthy sense of um skepticism isn't the word but i just thought well this this says more about the person offering the attention than it does about me like what how what a nice person who wants to be so nice to a kid that's kind of how i always felt like you must you, like it's reflected on them beautifully and if they didn't it wouldn't reflect on me poorly hmm. that makes sense it's kind of it's not a zero-sum situation um so uh, i guess what i'm getting is that then you find i found myself in these places where i would regret not having done something or i felt like i should have to maintain my commitment and uh and then if you fast forward to like we're talking about Chick or if you look at Zorn or if you looked at Jim Hall or Frizzell or all these masters and they're, they, they genuinely seem to be rejuvenated by their craft mm -hmm. rather than feeling guilty about not doing it right. And I, I don't think it's an accident that that same personal disposition uh, is connected to masterful music making. You know, it's like it's kind of all connected to put it simply. Well, you introduced this idea that you are constantly returning to the moment and learning these lessons like when it's okay not to put yeah. pressure on yourself. It's funny, I saw a comment on a YouTube clip where you a year ago played Emily solo on YouTube. And the top pinned comment on the YouTube clip, somebody goes, oh, great. Now he's going to be practicing. All, he, all he's got is to sit at home and practice. He's going to get even better. You know, guitar players That's are great. like, you know, beating That's themselves great. up. And yeah. so, and I thought, right, I wonder, did you spend the year shedding or did you spend the year shedding the need to shed? Well, it's, it's so beautifully articulated. That's is kind of both. periods of my life where I was actively practicing in an obsessive way. I, it hasn't, I haven't been that way for a long time. 
But I've had my attention, especially over this last year, from a musical perspective, directed towards making this record, you know, that we're making, that, that's coming out and really kind of reflecting, I guess is the word, on the correlation between the state of the world, systemic racism, injustice on so many fronts, the pandemic, the, the, the deep suffering, you know, that's just baked into so much of life and really understanding First of all, with humility and compassion and empathy, just looking at it and saying, I need to understand this deeper than ever. And then fostering a bridge from that to making art that reflects that, that art that's not, um, doesn't, ne- doesn't intend to uh, reconcile anything necessarily. That's a bit, you know, um, that's lofty per- perhaps, but, but, but more art that doesn't ignore it, art, art that can sit with the unknown, you know, these unknown mm-hmm. questions. And so over this, this year, there's been a, all my practicing was a, around um, translation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, not like I want to get better and play this because I want to get better and play this, but I want to understand how this feeling or this sentiment or this message that I want to communicate, what needs to be done on the technical front on the guitar so that that feels, um, well, well, so that when I play, it sounds like I'm talking to mm-hmm. you. That's kind of always, that's been the quest. Uh, and I think prior to this year, we were touring, and it was such a blessing. It was wonderful, but it, that was so much, so much more about maintenance. You know, just staying good enough to be presentable <laughs> in the world, uh, and and less, maybe less ambitious hmm. on my part in terms of like, what do I really want to do with the instrument? And and I think that, I think it was there. I just wasn't. I didn't. I was. I was kind of. Uh, I didn't have as much stillness around it as I did in this last year. Um, so, so yeah, when it, when everything shut down, I, I definitely didn't go into super hyper practice mode. It took me a little while. Frankly, I taught I taught mm. so much this last year, which was a big part of my life. It's just education, and you know, I had wonderful teachers. I love teaching. I love I love that we share that as a community, uh, the ability to pass on information. Mm. Um, and that that took up a, that was a big portion of the year, and I, I just I found it endlessly wonderful you know so that's where my attention went in a lot of ways yeah the idea of teaching and your love of sharing the information i mean i i, I don't expect that you remember this but i i saw you at the duke de lombard a few years ago i do Paris, remember that of course and i remember saying to you afterwards you are in love with the guitar i mean it's yeah. like watching a love affair play out on stage yeah. you have so much joy and so much love of the instrument that it's impossible not to feel that yeah. love and be in love with it also yeah and i mean i guess i'm just struck over and over again by how much possibility in another person's hands there would have been to mm. feel removed from the world to be so exceptional right. so early right, 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 and right. to feel separated to walk into so many rooms and think i am other than you i am other Absolutely. than this and oh i hear you God, over yeah. and over again saying no i want to be part of i want to connect with not separate yeah. myself from you're, you're you're so right i mean just let's just underline what you're talking about it's that you know, it can, that otherness, that sense of separation, that there's me and then there's life and somehow I have to connect them, you know, totally ignoring the fact that we are life. Mm-hmm. That, that You see that show up with yeah, young people who have certain skills with with anything, you know, and you also see it with adults. Let's face it, it's, it's, a, um, it's kind of just a, a, one of those sticky, habitual things that, that if you 
if go if it go if if gone unquestioned, mm-hmm. um, it can make you feel really isolated from the world. And what got you to that place can be, yeah. In my case, it was having attention as a young person. For someone, it because for some other reason, mm-hmm. right? Anything's sure. possible. I want to stress one thing that's I think a little different though is that you know I grew up in a time that was just before the cusp of YouTube and social media. And I, and I have to say, I mean, I, I don't know any different, right? But I'm grateful for that experience because I, though I started young, I was a secret in my own, in my family's and my community's world forever. And I, I loved it. So it wasn't, you know, and though there were opportunities where I could have maybe been more exploitative, but we didn't take those. And even the sense of, um, uh, the documentary that was made, that that was really, that was a, you know, a thesis project for a, a grad student at Stanford University. And so in so many respects, it was his, it was about him, you know, and I was the subject. And somehow it seemed very clear that it was very, you know, very much about him. And so there was that that barrier. And then, you know, I played on TV and I had that, I had attention from that, but really that led directly to joining Gary Burton's band. And Gary was like a, protector of mine and and so i feel i just feel very grateful that I, I, it was different than it is today today i i marvel at the constitution it requires to be young to be on social media and have a ton of attention like and 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 to ask a young person to like deal with it i i i, I don't know how i would fare i i know how as an as an adult i don't cope well with that attention so i i can't imagine as a kid there are things with young people as we all know it's like you know there, there there's a certain you don't know any different so you don't know to be upset about it so that's that's a good thing you know sometimes it's it, ignorance is bliss to a certain degree i'm so glad that you brought that up because i think about that also and you know the question for me has been are there more exceptional young talents today than there were 20, 30, 40 years ago as a result of the internet because they have more access? Right. Or are we made more aware of them because, you know, a Joey Alexander can come from so far away and be discovered. Exactly. But you're right that for so many of them, you know, what you describe is being kind of introduced into this more traditional system of mentorship and the elders sort of passing it down. And the good news is if you're anywhere in the world, you can share your talent with the rest of the world. But for the most part, it's happening in a kind of isolation. And maybe some of the kids who are growing up in this generation don't have access to that direct oral tradition that you're talking about. I think you're absolutely right. Well, in in order to foster that for for someone nowadays, it might require, I don't want to say shutting anything out, but it might, there might be a certain degree of okay, I'm going to become a disciple of this mentor for the next year. And I'm really going to only connect myself to them. And, and, um, absolutely. It's like, in other words, it's very possible, but it, but it, it, you would, it would, I think it would require, uh, being very deliberate about that move and saying, well, I'm, you know, if I'm going to be this person's disciple, I'm going to not post anything on the internet myself until after this Hmm. period. I'm not, that's, um, but I have so much faith in young, everything you know just young culture and 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 i think it's it's it it you know it's not about betting against the young generation it's just saying they're going to find there's going to be a creative way to have mentorship and and understand exploitation and they're completely different um parameters than i grew up with that's 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 you know but uh that's why i was born when i was born and those who are born today were born today that's our that's our deal 
Do you remember feeling impatient as a young musician? You know, you talk about giving yourself over to a mentorship for a year or yeah. a period that yeah. you were with Gary Burton or, you know, whatever. Sure. Do you remember feeling like you were in a hurry to get somewhere? Just hearing you say those words makes me, you know, uh, light up with just, just kind of that like ephemeral memory. You know what I mean? Like I just, when you said that I felt it, I don't know why or when I, I wanted to be an adult, you know, I wanted to be in a position where I had agency to start bands, call people, drive my car to their house, you know? And I, and as a kid, I was supported in every imaginable way. And I think I wanted to, um, I think it, I'm sure at times that it felt like a, there was a certain impatience on my part of like, I want to be there now. I want to do, I want to be able to, um, yeah, cultivate a professional life in music, but I wasn't running towards the public side of it. You know, that's, I've always felt like I, I just want, I just always felt like a researcher, you know, and I was like, I've been in R and D my whole <laughs> life. That's how it feels like. So I just wanted more things to study more things to learn about. And, and who knows what fuels that, right? You know, um, but I, 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 like, I think maybe I've been kind of pursuing the same thing my whole life. I'm just looking for new ways to talk about it, new ways to contextualize it. And that maybe was at the root of impatience is less impatience, but more just, gosh, let's see how far this can go. Yeah. But I, I've always had a slight, not indifference towards the public side of things, but just you know, not a show must go on kind of perspective. I always say that I'm kind of like, if it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. I don't, I don't, I don't, it's not up to me to s prove the world wrong and show them that I've got something they got to hear. I think, I think that t sentiment is essential for, for anybody creating right on some level that you have to believe that if you're going to take an hour out of your life and listen to my music, that it was worth you taking, mm -hmm. taking that time out of your life, you know? I believe that. I do believe there's an exchange. I don't think it's just that I throw stuff out of the world and then by luck people choose to, you know, listen to it. No, it's, 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 it's a really deep connection. Um, but I can't pretend I know what other people think of me. I can't pretend I really gather how other people perceive me. So to use that as the kind of root of like, well, I want to, of, of motivation, it always felt like a dead end. You know, I just thought, okay, I just got to keep pushing the standards of what I think are possible and be open to those who want to receive it. Be open to those who want to receive it. You know, be be not be alarmed if someone says, "Oh, I want to hear you." Yeah. Say, cool. You can hear me, and I can hear me, and we can be together. This is this beautiful social contract. Yes, uh, that's kind of my relationship to it all. Is eagerness, but and some impatience, but presumably just projections of my own. I read in an interview once where you said, for a long time, people would say you sound so good for how young you are, and you were waiting to yeah. outgrow that. You just wanted to sound good and not good. be good for your age, but just be good. Yeah. But there comes a time when you're no longer young anymore. I mean, you know, you're young Absolutely. relatively, but you're not yeah. being uh, evaluated based on, or judged based on your age. That's right. That's right. I, and I think that's a healthy. I think I think there's a place in the world, obviously, for both. You know, if there's a young person who is really playing at a level that's not usually associated with um, someone their age, absolutely, we should celebrate that. And we should cultivate it, right? You know, as a teacher, I find myself in that position where it's mm -hmm. like, yeah, support, encouragement, uh, all of that. And um, but I, I do remember that as a kid, where I, I did want to just feel like the music spoke for itself, that it wasn't tied to this age bracket and it wasn't 
It just didn't need a qualifier. Good for uh, anything. It's got this very dangerous way of looking at something. I mean, I guess maybe if it's like with food, you could say that's a good burger for given that it was $3. You know, you could say that. But but since we're talking about creativity and art and this stuff, I'm not saying that's any way fancier than a burger. And in mm-hmm. many ways, it's kind of simple. It's a little less, it's harder to measure in those ways. And um, given that that was my impulse to feel like I just want to be accepted for as a musician, I have to say I was so fortunate that I, I played with adults who also looked at me in the way I would hope, you know, they weren't looking at, obviously I was a kid, but they didn't use different language around me. They didn't tr- play different songs because I was a kid. They, it was, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's the, um, it's the community of musicians and also jazz as an art form has a deep tradition of this. Do you know what I mean? Of young people, like we were talking about being brought up through, um, I don't know, through someone's tutelage or, there's always been a wonderful celebration of the young. Honestly, in jazz, there's always been a big celebration of the young, very the young and the old, <laughs> and right. And so there, and and that's that is a spectrum that poses the question: What do you do in the middle? You know, if and, and you can't know if it's in the middle, right? <laughs> but but if you're an established musician who's not yet a legend, mm-hmm. according to certain jazz metrics you know, what is your duty and how do you fulfill it and how do you manifest it? And, um, you know, and again, we looked to all the masters who, who show, have shown us how to do that. I just feel very lucky just as we're reflecting on this. I feel like I've, I've I see a lot of, I've had a lot of great role models for how to yeah. skin this cat. You know, it's with humility that I just think, well, I think at the end of the day, I just need to make stuff. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe it's not so complicated. And, and that frankly feels a lot like how I felt when I was, a kid. The difference was I wasn't writing music as a kid. I was practicing. So I was involved in the practice of technical, of tech, you know, mastering technical aspects of the guitar. Now I feel like my focus is really cultivating, understanding what mastery can look like as a composer. Yes. And God knows what's beyond that, if anything. Well, I have a few lines of inquiry that I'd love to follow up here. Yeah. Hearing what you say, you know, one of them is especially because of the focus on the technical aspect of the guitar so early on. In a funny way, the guitar is a kind of a psychological test that people who deal with it have to confront, particularly if they become technically proficient. I mean, it's almost like right. splitting the atom or something. It could be used for good or for bad, you know? It's true, it's true. And, and so often there's some kind of emotional trigger that happens to people where they want to you know, they, guitar players have a tendency often to play a little too much or a little too loud right. or a little too active and have trouble f- locating that space and the silences and the spaces in between the notes and all that yeah. stuff. And somehow y- you, in completely in line with the rest of what your personality seems to suggest, mm-hmm. did start to embrace space pretty early on and to embrace patience in the, your playing and certainly now also in your writing. I mean, I guess I just want to put that in front of you and ask you, yeah. at some point, did you make an effort? Did you realize that there were opportunities to kind of like shape it and not yeah. play everything? Oh my God, absolutely. And it's a wonderful question. Like I like the way you, you phrase it because it's it's uh, there's a gravitational pull with the guitar and, and, and I would imagine drums might be similar um, towards a, a certain technical agency that is in and of itself is pretty striking um and you know frankly i've always been a fan of players who have no qualms about 
leading with their technical mm-hmm. abilities. I think I think that the a dangerous, not dangerous, but like a uh, a precarious zone is where um, maybe a player feels like it would be immodest to be technically masterful, but they also don't feel empowered to cultivate like a real creative direction. So they're kind of neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. It's like if you're an Olympian guitar player, be an Olympian, play play as fast as you can yeah. and make it this inc- and, and just go there, you know? And, and, and uh, I think it's actually wonderful. <laughs> but often you'll have this identity crisis within jazz guitar where uh, a player is, has a certain amount of technique, but like I was saying before, it's kind of inappropriate for them to use it. So then you get this feeling of discord. And I mm-hmm. think that's what we associate with the tech, with that, that bad feeling mm-hmm. of the technique, you know, um, kind of driving the, the machine. Yes. In my case, I didn't grow up with all that much um, agency on the instrument. I really didn't. It, I, I was always slower than other players. I couldn't play fast, really. And I don't even say that with modesty. I, I actually could. I wasn't in my scope. Seven or so years ago, I, I hurt my left hand playing guitar. I, it, it spasm shut during a show, and it all, all all sorts of therapies were involved. But basically, it was just extreme tension, and mm. that was mimicking a lot of the um, symptoms of something called focal dystonia, mm. which is a neurological condition where your hands basically stop um, functioning properly. Um, very simply put, you've used your hand to do a bunch of fine motor skills, you know, activities and the brain, which is really plastic, you know, it will move, change. The brain will change and evolve, um, tries to, uh, kind of like, uh, make your movements more efficient. So rather than feeling like you have five distinct fingers that each have to work hmm. at a hundred percent, the, the brain will say, why don't we just give you kind of two fingers We'll, we'll, we'll sum it up because they seem to be moving in the same general location. So what you get is you'll feel your index and your middle is one. You'll feel your third and your pinky is another. Mm-hmm. And you'll get clumsy with your hands. Uh, pitchers often in baseball famously get this. Leon Fleischer, pianist, famously got it. And um, and it's usually only linked to the activity. So in other words, if my hand wasn't near the guitar, I wouldn't feel sluggish or like my fingers or whatever. If I went to pick up the guitar, suddenly... Mm. they would get kind of discombobulated. So I had all the symptoms of this. And through a lot of different pathways, I was able to get past it. And it was amazing because you can, if you catch it, you can, in time you can kind of uh, repattern the brain. Now, after that was actually when my technique as a player became um, the focus out of like medical necessity. You mm. know what I mean? Like I couldn't, it hurt to play slow in a mm-hmm. weird way. Like I had to play. In other words, to have a fluid, really graceful left hand was almost like a, a almost like it felt like a hand, like a like a massage, mm-hmm. you know. And the more the more fluid and the longer I played, the more my hand was um, less likely to so, like stop and turn into um, a, a super tense hand, right? So it's kind of like being on the run. I was felt like I was on the run for about a year or two after uh, the injury. That was when I think I had probably more horsepower than I ever had as a player. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw the limits of how you can abuse it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, 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 and so it was from that point of view that I said, okay, wow. My governor for the first 18, 20 years of my life mm-hmm. was that huh. I couldn't do something. And so I think, uh, you know, as a hmm. default, it sounded like I was leaving space. 
And then now that I could play more, different things govern the space. And then it became more a conceptual pursuit over the last however many years of like um, strategies for playing that incorporate like thoughts like I play this much and I leave this much space. And I play this much, I leave this much space. And that wouldn't have been in my scope as a young person. And it, it wouldn't, I didn't need to have it in my scope as a young person. Um, yeah, it sounds so like you're, kind quite, of interesting, right? you're quite fortunate in a lot of ways that it came to you oh, later. absolutely. Considering this has been so much of your sense of yourself, of your persona, of who you are, what was going through your mind seven years ago when you couldn't play? I was bummed. I was depressed about it. You know, I was, it was, it was, uh, just very challenging to, yeah. to, to, I guess, consider what part of the whole process was what I was the, what part of the process was the, was the part that I identified with as, you know, mm-hmm. most. And it wasn't playing shows. It wasn't like, Oh, I miss being out there. You know, cause I was playing a lot less publicly during that year of recovery. And though I love playing shows, I wasn't, that wasn't the thing that I felt was lost, but I felt, I guess on some ritualistic level, like my, my daily practice went away, you know, mm-hmm. and that was, it was hard. And, but it was also, it was hard for the first part of it, especially because I was like, what do I have? And why did, you know, you can, there's a thing with any injury where you can feel like you've been betrayed, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. by your system, mm-hmm. you know, but for all I've done for you, and this is what, you know, like kind of felt like I, but I, practice right i did it all and and now my left hand doesn't work i didn't get it very quickly in talking to anyone who's intelligent about these matters so there are like gerald harsher Juan mm-hmm. pasquale they're just great guitarists who teach this incredible technique and they were teachers for me through all this um you start to realize that it's that assumption that because you've been doing it a long time that it's the right thing that causes injuries, mm-hmm. right? So I had this relationship with instruments that was unquestioned, and it's a miracle I made it as far as I did mm. without an injury. But once I started realizing that the you can have a relationship with an instrument where you um, where it's healthy and restorative, and you actually get better as and you and freer the more you do it. I, I it was kind of like where can I sign up? Like this sounds great, and I don't think and I think even if people had told me about that those uh, techniques. Prior, you know, I would have been more of the thought, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, you know? So I didn't think, so the the fact that it broke was great. And then I was just like, oh my goodness, this is going to change not only how I play, but how I teach. Yes. You know, because I had taught a lot of the things that were associated with my injury. Hmm. I would say, well, to have this technique proper, this is because it's what I learned, you know? And then I thought, oh gosh, I I have to call everyone I ever taught. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> put the guitar down you know but then again you when you start to realize it's very body specific yeah you know for some people can get away with things that fit their stature and, and others like in my case i couldn't sustain so it was it was it's all only positive the language that you use to describe the relationship with the instrument only reinforces my feeling after having seen you in paris that time yeah you know when you say it's possible to have a relationship with your instrument that is fulfilling and rewarding and healthy it's it's it's, if you're talking about a a partner you know i mean it's It's your partner to me that's what instruments one of the superpowers of (laughs) instruments and it's funny man because you know, there's a, uh, guitars, especially and vintage guitars, especially they get very fetishy. Yes. You know, and you, you love the thing and the part and the year and the whatever. Um, and though that isn't a highly sustainable 
relationship as a player to really be concerned with it too much. You know, to a certain degree, you get the tools you need, but um, at a certain point, you become a collector more than a player, and that's great too. But but what what I will say that around the time I started recovering from my injury, I also started playing more vintage instruments, hmm. which was kind of made me feel what you're talking about, which was that like the, I knew that there was a reason to look at it as a partner, the guitar mm-hmm. as a partner, mm-hmm. and one that you want a healthy relationship with. But then once you start playing instruments that are older and have certain stories built into them and songs living inside of them, um, well, it just makes that whole narrative so much richer, right? Like, okay, I want to really study the Telecaster, and I want to specifically study the early 50s Telecasters, which are have a certain property. And, you know, like, if we're partners, I want to know everything about yeah. this. And, yeah. um it got very, you know, the, the, so the, the recovery from the injury, the beginning of playing vintage instruments, cultivating a clear conceptual perspective for my band and the projects I was making, it all kind of happened together. And, and, and I should say it's all happening. Yes. Um, it's, 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 it's currently underway. You know, I'm glad that you mentioned the thing about playing vintage Telecasters because y- yeah. you'd have played a lot of different instruments and a lot of different styles, but you do seem to have right now. I mean, are you playing, is that a telly on the new record? Ironically, no, uh, because it was designed as a complete Telecaster record, and we couldn't quite record the telly. The way the, re- the telly sounded recorded wasn't the way it sounded live. Huh. And it's and, it, and I think it has a lot to do with a Telecaster. We were in a very, very big room because of COVID. We all had masks on for this record, and we were all spread very far apart. And I think the Telecaster just didn't put out enough power to activate the room. Hmm. So I ended up using um, different instruments than that, but but it's funny because to me it is a, it's I use a different guitar to get my favorite telly sound. <laughs> is how I think of it. And I hear you saying also that as you kind of rebuilt your your technical relationship with the instrument, that maybe that's when you also yeah. fell deeper in love with the Telecaster. Absolutely, they held hands because it just felt like, well, what are you doing this for? If you why do you want to move well? Why do you want to? What, what what's the outcome of a healthy relationship? And I think what what I felt was, if you're gonna if you're cultivating a healthier relationship with an instrument, you want as much of that relationship to translate through the guitar, through the speaker, into the world, right? And one of the funny phenomenons about electric guitars, and I remember Jim Hall used to say this all the time. He said, you know, the amplifier lets you play quieter, meaning that. Yeah the amp guitar combo basically means that you can be more efficient with your movements mm-hmm. and it doesn't govern the ceiling for how loud you can play. Yeah. Um, and I felt like, wow, that, that, that kind of dynamic range, that kind of partnership just makes this, yeah. that thing that I'm feeling actually translate out of the instrument. Whereas before I think I had more of a, uh, a conception that if almost like I was like shoving my ideas through the guitar, you know, I would like play something and be like, well, it didn't come out the way I want on the other end, but who cares? Cause I know I played it right. Uh, which is a little bit more in my experience, akin to the arch top tradition. Yes. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's in a certain way you can even justify playing a guitar that no one can hear because you, it feels good. It sounds good to where you are and, and who cares if they can't hear you. Uh, I think I, I, I just, I had to make that transition. I reached out to Dave King last March 
because I was doing a series of episodes about people who had been disrupted in the mid, you yeah. know, when COVID hit. And yeah. he was not in a particularly optimistic space to talk. But one of the yeah. things that he said to me is, I'm out here with Julian Lodge and we are, it's like yeah. the bridges are on fire behind us. Yeah. Every town yes. we go to, <laughs> so they're destroyed after we leave. Oh, man. You guys were on tour in the Midwest as COVID yes, was coming across. as COVID hit. It was, un, it was so weird and I can't believe we did it. Like I can't, I, it was this, in some ways the stupidest thing <laughs> we've ever done. And also it wasn't, I don't think it was misguided. I just think we didn't, you don't know what you don't know, you know? And we basically, essentially we, we had, we were about to make this record last February uh-huh. and our basis was unable to do it day of the recording, like we were in the studio and there was an emergency that had to be dealt with. So Mm -hmm. the session got canceled. This is, oh, and by the way, there's this thing called COVID and we might not go to Japan next month. Like that's, that's where everything was. And, um, so in the wake of that emergency, and then as we looked down the barrel, the fact that our Asian tour, because it also, I think included China was going to be canceled. Um, Dave said, let's, I bet you we could get in my Jeep and we could book some gigs. And Margaret and Dave and myself got together and we just thought about it for an hour over dinner. We said, yeah, we could, you could route it this way. I'll find mm-hmm. Minneapolis. We'll take the car. We'll do mm-hmm. a big loop. Went to Memphis and um, it was wonderful. Played all these places. But in each day there would be these little reports of, okay, this, you know, this thing is looking serious. And um, we were willing to drop it at any moment, but it, really wasn't i mean we're we're talking like march 13th mm-hmm. march 10th like in that right so before they shut everything down and our last gig was on i think the day before they shut everything down mm. so march 15th or so yeah. whatever that was and i remember that gig the, that night before things shut down the the the, the deal was um Oh, for not to, you know, we sold out, but we were only going to allow 50 people in just to be extra safe. We thought, well, that's, that's a sign of some weirdness. Like, let's, like, should we just call the whole thing? And no, 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 everyone feels fine. And then flew home and then stayed home for the next year. But as a musical experience, it was tremendously Mm. cathartic because Dave and I share a rapport that, frankly, it's just, it's built on live playing and interaction Mm. and in spontaneous composition. And I adore him, and I I just love that guy. And um, so, on some level, I feel like it was just this blessing where we could go to these places, bring the essence of the music, mind you, without a core element of the music, which is Jorge, uh, and, and almost our basis, and 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 say, okay, in his absence, we're going to celebrate the values of this music, which is spontaneity, mm. joy, risk, melodicism, um, and just let's just throw it out into the world, see what happens. Meanwhile, we're seeing the world kind of recede into its state of shutdown. And so it's surreal. It's kind of like it never happened. In retrospect, I think it was flirting with something being very dangerous for everyone. And, um, but we just didn't know. And thank God we cut it off when we did, because we could have gone longer and thank God we didn't push it. We did, we didn't want anyone to be anyone involved to feel like they were at risk. Yeah. You talk about sitting down with Dave and Margaret Glasby, who's your partner yes. and who's also yeah. contributed to production on this record. And, yes. and I'm always interested in creative partnerships like that when you right. have two right. people who have creative careers and are in support of each other, but also have their own needs. I mean, yeah. creativity is both collaborative and also kind of 
has an element of selfishness about it. Right, right, right. And, you know, and, and how you manage that or what, what, how that works. Well, I consider myself extremely fortunate to be Margaret's friend. You know, we've been partners as friends for 11 years, 12 years, went to school together and lived in Boston at the same time. And I think we're, we, so we're, we're sensitive to each other's workflow and what we require. I think we have a sympathetic way of looking at things. She's such a composer and songwriter and like she can see, she can see so macro and so detailed in a way that's unbelievable. And my disposition is a little more, um, it's similarly like geoprismatic, like of like all the, the angles, but it's, 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 it's a little, I'm okay without having an outcome. Mm. She actually produces results <laughs> where she'll like sit down and finish a song. I'll have like a bunch of unfinished things because I'm just thinking about it from different angles and it could be this, it could be that, it could be that, whatever. So we're, we're, we're we, we love each other and we love supporting each other's pursuits. And creatively, I think we, we're both, you know, the youngest children in our family mm. and I'm the youngest of five. She's the youngest of three. And so I think we have that youngest child disposition of like, we kind of grew up having youngest children can sometimes feel like only children with siblings, you know? And, uh, and I think we see that quality in each other and understand that we require time alone to work and feel like we're supported in that. Mm -hmm. And we also, when we want to come back together, join forces, we really want to feel like we're Mm -hmm. in it together. Mm -hmm. Like that. It's not that it's very balanced. And, and, and frankly, it's like a day-to-day thing of what are you, you know, we ask each other, what are you working on? What do you need to feel supported when you're working on this? Do you need to just be alone for the next three days? And do, Cool. Do you need my, do you want me to just sit here while you write it? Sure. You know? Um, hmm. So I, again, I go back to what I said at the beginning. It's, it's like, I, I just, I'm very lucky that I have a partner who understands that. Um, I don't think we feel threatened by each other's music because we all, we occupy such in many respects, very similar areas, but also very different worlds, you know? Yes. Um, yeah, and for that, I feel like, yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of nice. It's almost like we're in two different businesses. I see that. I think it can be probably more complicated when you have, you know, artists it, who are basically competing for the same slice of pie. It ain't that. It yeah. ain't that at all. I, 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 we're, you know, it's really, and it's cool. And yeah. we, 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 we benefit from learning about each other's worlds and understanding how to, you know how that works and and like her being the producer of this record yeah. you know along with armand hirsch it's yeah. but margaret was kind of like the she's the one saying you got it or you don't or can you please do that again or stop doing that this would sound better you know she and i love it i and i trust her implicitly you know you talk about how over time you've started to embrace being a composer and margaret's a composer and a yeah. songwriter really yeah. and i also like the way you talk about how what you and Dave King love is spontaneous composition because that's a thing also. Yeah. There seems to be a kind of implicit message in this new record. If the previous record was basically a covers album and it was a way of absorbing all of these disparate kinds of songs into your world. Yeah. Now the response to that is to make a record that is almost 100% original it was absolutely intentional, you know. I, you know, no small part of that intention was centered around signing to Blue Note, you know. And to me, Blue Note Records as a tradition, as a music, you know, we talk about it as a musical tradition. There's a sound to the Blue Note Records of the 50s and 60s and 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. It's, it's, it's always been there. But, but, but to me, Blue Note 
recording artists famously reconcile the worlds of improvisation with songwriting. You know, it's it's Herbie, it's Wayne, it's Grant Green, it's Blue Train, it's it's you know, it's it's there there are studies in like uh, yeah, you can have it all. <laughs> you can make songs that are just incredible songs that really elicit your strongest improvisational mm-hmm. performance. And um, for Squint, I felt that it was important for us to tackle it from that perspective. Let's be less anachronistic you know less less focused on well this was a thing that happened that we can do like then or it's less about this one guitar or this even this personnel despite it being a very special group of musicians and really say what is that intersection about where you write these songs where if they weren't written you wouldn't improvise that way uh and if you wrote too much you really wouldn't improvise that way Mm. and uh like you know what is that whole mechanism, and and how do you find the, how do you find that balance? I think of McCoy Tyner all the time, someone who found, I think of Passion Dance, that song of like, just the best example of, um, an original composition that showcases the kind of tempo, feel, mm-hmm. harmonic, melodic information that he believed in, and was able to go even further during the solo sections, and Joe Henderson as well, um, and there's countless examples like that. So. You know, the compositional thing I think used to be, I think I used to think of composition as meaning uh, the opposite of improvisation. And I was almost, le- I was intimidated by it. And I thought, well, no, I think my particular style of composition is very pro-improviser. Man, I, th- I'm reminded now that I read that you yeah. wrote some of these songs while listening to spoken word recordings and respo- oh, yeah. responded to the human voice as a tool to open up songwriting. Absolutely. I was listening to a lot of James Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni and, you know, just heroes of mine and leaders. Commu- this is what I was talking about in the year of reflection of like looking at, you know, what are the messages that we're really contending with? And ending racism and looking at injustice on all fronts is that's at the center of it that's the point and and when you have masters speaking about these topics it's and they're so enlightened and they're so generous with this deep soulful um offering you know you think well just as a human being on this planet i need to listen and again shut up and just listen <laughs> you know and then as i started thinking about the musical side of it, i thought well when you have masters expressing information of such um profound substance the way it's being presented is as critical as what's being said right they can't be divorced and so as i started listening to these speeches i would play along with them and just think well, let's think, but just kind of stumble around and say, what what music supports this temperament? What's like if you take James Baldwin, you're listening to his cadence, which is otherworldly, wonderful, and as is the message. Um, what music feels sympathetic to it? Is it? And I could tell when I'd play things that, though might be uh, fine, really were involved. They they were there. It was actually just me going back into something I already knew how to play. You know what I mean? It wasn't really an original. I was just kind of regurgitating, and I would say, "No, we're trying to respond with with tones and pitches to words in the English language." Yes. Um, and and and, and I, I I just happen rather to have a, an obsession with the fact that language language is abstract representation of life, and so 
Yes. Why would notes and pitches and rhythms be any less of a, an abstraction? It's actually a really wonderful version. So um, I need to start thinking of them as words, you know, or having the weight of a, of someone who's speaking. Yes. Um, not, not a less, you know, no, not a lesser version yes. of English language. Oh, there's so many questions. I'm going to try to squeeze two in here before we run yeah, out of time. It, you know, I love the way your analysis of what made Blue Note special. You know, my dad had a, um, an interview series in the 80s. He talked to a lot of people. He talked to Rudy Van Gelder and he asked him, how come the records on, let's say, Prestige that were made in your studio didn't sound as organized as the Blue Note records that were made, often with the same personnel and the same in the same studio? And Rudy said, because of rehearsal, Alfred Lyon paid for an extra day of rehearsal on Blue Note Records. So, you know, that was always the sort of like, I don't know, the de facto explanation that I had grown up hearing. But I, I think you're absolutely right that there's another piece of it, which is about intention and composition and expression through composition, which I think goes hand in hand with with the rehearsal piece of it because there's something to rehearse you need to rehearse (laughs) this new music otherwise but part of the reason i like that as a definition or as your kind of bumpers your your uh, boundaries around it is because you tend not to make records in the sort of typical jazz spaces this record as you say was made in a big room in nashville the previous record was made in chicago these are not the rooms that the usual new york trio goes into right and it doesn't sound like a blue note record i mean it has it feels it's darker and it feels more like the little more southern you know that's it well you know part of part of i guess the conception that we share as a trio and also along with and with margaret and armand as producers and with mark goodell who's our engineer and tours with us uh and you know basically a, a a deep part of the fabric of what we're doing part of the conception is that we really we're kind of interested in this idea that sound is air being pushed. And you, if you're in the business of pushing air, <laughs> uh, you have a lot of different um, options about how you reinforce certain frequency ranges. And what's it when, and if you, in other words, if you, one way of pushing air is if you really are very, very bass forward on a lot of things that will, that'll kind mm. of, propagate through the airwaves and set a different temperament than if the bass is really recessed and as a sub concept to that hmm. we understand that we're pushing air which in itself is pretty abstract and not it's not exacting like you, you can just kind of gently nudge these things um but as a subcategory of that is that we're not really fans of hyper literal documents of how we play and and i guess what i mean by that is there's there's that tradition of saying that you know well you should mic a guitar this way because that's what the guitar sounds like. Mm-hmm. And I think there are aspects of the guitar that I wouldn't want to hear on a record, even though the guitar produces those properties. And we're okay with that. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the reasons we've gone to these unusual places is we're really looking for rooms within which we, in which we can almost avoid a literal capture of the band. Avoid a literal capture. Uh, yeah, avoid yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. We're, yeah. Exactly. We're just avoiding it. It's there. <laughs> It's implicit, yes, it's true that a ride cymbal does sound brighter in a room than it might sound on a record, but we're not in a room. We're on a we're in a record. Yeah. At the end of the day, we want whatever's coming out of the speakers to push air in a way that's pleasant and very listenable. Yes. And there's no fear that we're being misrepresented. 
because there's there's not an empirical representation that we all agree upon, <laughs> you know? That speaks to the intentionality piece of it, that to right. make a record intentionally as a record, that a record is its yes. own thing. It's not necessarily, wow. a you know, as you say. Yeah, it's not a gig on tape. It's, it's not, not a gig on tape. Even a gig on tape isn't the gig on tape. It's, yeah. It takes on this new life for us. And also, you know, I mean, a couple of things I just want to say briefly about yeah. that before we we're yep. at the end. It's just that I feel like one when we look at a great jazz records, I sometimes feel sad that there's been an omission of the concept of production. Like you hear sold, you know, Blue yeah. Train. Yes. And I hear I heard that re- the other week, and I was like, that's one of the best produced records. Production as far as the instruments, the balance, yes. the arrangements, and I think. In more modern traditions, it's been noted that production means you're adding something from the computer or it's something related to something else. But I do think Blue Note Records really consider the production. And I don't think it's called that. I think it's called band leading. But even we're talking about Passion Dance is one of the greatest produced mm-hmm. you know, uh, examples of air being pushed. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and I think we just, we're hunting for that. We're looking for how we can... Yeah celebrate that because you make the record and then it's done god willing you go on to the next one so each one should have its own unique stamp yes well i love this unique stamp and congratulations on it, it came out beautifully julian thanks for thank taking you time my to friend talk about i'm it. so happy to talk with you i could i could literally talk to you forever it's, I, i'm grateful we're friends and we had this opportunity likewise i wish you luck with all of it all right okay, have a be great well, rest of the day. be well take care bye-bye there he was my friends julian lodge What a beautiful person. What a beautiful musician. I'll be back in your headspace before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org slash studios.